You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning once again. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. So gra- we're so glad that you're here with us on this Sunday morning to worship the Lord and, and to study His Word. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. So if you can find Hebrews, it's one of the bigger books in your New Testament. You go to Hebrews and go two books to your left or you can just use your table of contents. But we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us today. And we ask that as we open it, as we study it now, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, give us receptive minds, give us receptive hearts, Lord, that we would not only hear your word, but we would understand it. And Lord, that by your power, we would apply it to our lives. And Lord, that you would do a transforming work in us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So currently we are in a series. We've been in, this is our third week in the series. It's, we're taking eight weeks and the series is called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And the way that we started the series is that we put out a poll uh, a couple months ago and we asked people to complete that sentence for us. How would you complete that sentence? How do you hear people around you completing that sentence saying things like I could never believe in a God Who does this or that. And so we're taking eight weeks and we've taken the answers from that poll. And what we're doing is we're taking a week at a time and looking at some of the things which create the biggest hurdles for people when it comes to embracing Christianity, putting their faith in Jesus, really wholeheartedly believing in the Bible, you know, giving their lives over to Jesus. Because that's what we believe, of course, is the whole trajectory of the Bible and the Christian faith. And so we want to know what are the things that are holding people back from that. And we want to address some of those things directly. And here's why. Why? Because as I've seen, a lot of the things that people say, this is what's holding me back, they're actually really good answers to those things. And we can address those things. And hopefully through this, we can remove some of those barriers to faith and we can help people move from disbelief to belief, from uh, not having faith to having faith. And of course, our goal is this, again, to remove some of those barriers, help you move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. But our other goal is to help equip you because we know that you talk to other people, right? You talk to friends, family, people at work, and a lot of them have similar questions that you do. And so not only do we want to answer these questions for your sake, but we want to answer these questions to equip you to be able to speak to other people who also struggle with similar things or uh, who also struggle with doubts or questions so that you can help them overcome those, those hurdles and move into faith and belief and, and trust in Jesus. So when it comes to Christianity, one of the things that people say they struggle with, they say things like this, I could never believe in a God who gave us a faulty Bible. A faulty Bible. So today what we're going to be talking about is this question, can we really trust the Bible? And if so, how do we know that we can trust it? Because, I mean, really, if we're going to tell people that they should build their lives on this book, well, then it does matter, right, what it says. It matters if it's trustworthy. It matters if we can actually uh, believe what it says and, and 
to what degree, right? So uh, let's talk about what's the word on the street, you know, among people when it comes to the Bible. Well, here's some responses that came in in response to our poll. One person said this. They said, it is unclear whether the Bible really is the word of God. They said, this is what I struggle with. It's unclear whether the Bible is really the word of God. Another person in a different poll uh, responded this way. They said this, I have a hard time basing my life on a book that was written thousands of years ago by the leaders of the time. In my opinion, the Bible was and still is a tool to oppress people. Right, so this is, this is a big issue. We should talk about this. In some polls that I looked at, other polls that were taken, this was the number one issue amongst Christians, right? Because a lot of these things we're talking about, they aren't just things that people who don't believe and don't follow Jesus, that they struggle with. These are things that, that you and I struggle with as well. These are honest questions that we have. And so this was a big issue amongst people who are Christians. How can I really know that the Bible's legit. Like, how can I really trust it? If I'm gonna base my whole life on this, I'd really like to know. And so it was number one question that Christians struggle with, and it was in the top five for people who are not Christians. Can I really trust the Bible? So what we're gonna do over the course of the next couple minutes is we're gonna look at some of the things that people commonly say and believe about the Bible, kind of the cultural Kool-Aid, you might say, right? Like uh, just what people in general think and say about the Bible. And we're going to examine the evidence and hold the two up to each other. And we're going to see where it leads. And I believe that as we do this, as I've studied on this, and you know, I've studied this at university level, and I've studied it in this past week coming up here. Um, here's what I want you to see through all of this. And that's this. The Bible is three things. Number one, the Bible is historically reliable. Number two, the Bible is subversive to the powers that be. It's subversive to the powers that be. And thirdly, it is not primarily about being good. And so we're going to talk about that. The Bible is not primarily about how to be good. So let's begin by looking at the text which we just read uh, a minute ago from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Now, 2 Timothy is a letter which Paul the Apostle wrote to a, a young pastor, a protege of his named Timothy, who is a young pastor in the early church in the city of Ephesus. Now, here's what Paul tells Timothy in this section that we, we looked at. In verse 14, he tells Timothy, Timothy, I want you to continue in what you've learned, and I don't want you to forget who you learned it from. Now, we know from the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament, we actually know quite a lot about Timothy. Um, we know that Paul first met Timothy on his first missionary journey. When Paul came to Timothy's hometown, which is a town called Lystra, he came there on his first missionary journey. It's in modern-day Turkey. And Paul came there, and he told the people there about Jesus, and he started a church there. And it was through that ministry of Paul that Timothy became a Christian. It wasn't just Timothy, but also his mother and his grandmother became Christians. In fact, they were pretty well-known people in the Christian church at that time. Paul actually mentions them by name here in this letter, 2 Timothy. Uh, his mom's name was Eunice and his grandmother's name was Lois and they're mentioned by name. And so all three of them became Christians at the same time during Paul's first missionary journey. They were part of the church there in their hometown of Lystra. Later on, on Paul's second missionary journey, he came back through that town and by that time, Timothy was a little bit older. We get the impression Timothy was probably maybe a teenager the first time around when he had uh, first brought the gospel to that city. Well, on the second time through Lystra, Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, why don't you join me and you'll be part of my team and we're gonna travel around the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world, and we're gonna tell people about Jesus and we're gonna start churches. And so Timothy joined him and they did that for years together, traveling together. And as a result,
result, what happened? Well, Timothy learned about Jesus. But I want to suggest to you, he probably didn't learn about Jesus only from Paul. On these journeys and on, at traveling with Paul and being his companion, he would have learned about Jesus from a lot of people, including, we can suppose, and again, this is a little bit reading between the lines, but we can suppose that he would have learned about Jesus even from people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. Now, we don't know that for sure, but certainly he would have at least read written accounts written by people who were eyewitnesses. Think about it like this. This letter was written... This is the last of Paul's letters. He wrote this shortly before his death. Okay, so everything else uh, that Paul wrote was written before this. This letter was written about 65 AD, which is about 32, 33 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. Now, this was the last letter that Paul ever wrote. So so shortly after this, he died uh, during a wave of persecution against Christians that happened in Rome. But what that means is that by the time that this letter was written, there were, a, there were still a lot of people around who were still eyewitnesses of Jesus. They had seen him teach. They, they had seen him be crucified. Some of them had seen him after he had resurrected from the dead. Now think about this. Uh, events that have happened in recent decades, right? Because this letter was written at that time, but Paul had already been traveling with Timothy for at least 10 years. So let's go back 10 more years, right? 20 years. You're 20 years out from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Think about things that have happened in the last 20 years in our lifetime, right? Do you think you could find eyewitnesses to those things? How about 9-11? Do you think there's anybody around who was there who can tell you what that was like uh, when those planes hit the, the World Trade Towers in New York? Of course there were. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, that's starting to be a long time now, but it really isn't that long ago. Or think about the war in Iraq, right? Are there any eyewitnesses to that? Of course there are, right? They're easy to find. Uh, how about the Obama era? Anybody remember that? Right, of course you do. It wasn't that long ago. See, there are plenty of people around today who are eyewitnesses of these things because they didn't happen very long ago. And, and uh, you can go and talk to them and you can verify things and you can ask how things really took place. And that's how it was with Jesus in these times, right? They're only 20, 30 years out from Jesus' death and resurrection. But it's also an interesting time because by this time, most of the books that we have in our New Testament were already written, and not only were they already written, they were already distributed amongst all the Christians, and they were considered scripture. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. So Paul is saying this, Timothy, continue in your faith. Why? Here's why. Because the things that, that you believe really happened. They're not just philosophy. They're real events that took place in real time, real places, real history. They happened. You can talk to people uh, who saw them happen. Don't forget who you learned these things from. You learned them from people who were there. They, they saw this stuff and they, they can verify it. Then he goes on in verse 15. He says this, and remember how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So another thing we know about Timothy from Acts chapter 16 is that Timothy's mother and grandmother, remember Eunice and Lois, right? We know that they were Jewish. They were Jewish and they raised Timothy apparently to know the Jewish scriptures from childhood. So they exposed him to this. They were probably going to synagogue. They were probably exposing him at home to what the scriptures said. And look at what Paul says there. Now, which scriptures are those? Let's be clear. The Old Testament scriptures. That's what he would have known from childhood. That's what would have been available when Timothy was a child. The Old Testament scriptures. By the way, the Old Testament, New Testament, for those of you who might be new to the Bible, what that simply means is this. Old Testament is all the books that were written before Jesus, and the New Testament is the, are the books that were written 
after Jesus, about Jesus, and then what happened after him. And so this is a really important phrase. Look at what it says there in the end of verse 15 in 2 Timothy 3. It says this. Paul says, these Old Testament scriptures, these sacred writings you have known since childhood, he says this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I say that again. Now remember, what scriptures are we talking about here? We're talking about the Old Testament scriptures that Timothy knew from his childhood. And Paul says, those scriptures you knew from your childhood, what are they good for? They are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's a really important phrase. It's important uh, for a couple reasons that we'll talk about today. But it's important because what Paul is saying is that the Old Testament scriptures, the part of the Bible written before Jesus, is about how to be saved through Jesus. Do you catch that? Now, that's interesting. Now, maybe you'd say, wait a second. I'm confused, right? Don't you mean the New Testament scriptures are able to make us wise to be saved through Jesus? I mean, the Old Testament, Jesus wasn't even around then, right? Like, how could could they speak about Jesus? Well, we're going to talk about that, and it's really important. So keep that phrase in mind. It's really, really key. Then Paul says in verse 16, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, this is interesting because in the previous verse, Paul talked about the sacred writings, right, which Timothy knew from childhood. Now, we know that those are the Old Testament scriptures, but now Paul used a different phrase. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Is he talking about the same scriptures? Most Bible scholars believe that what Paul is talking about here is not just the Old Testament. That what he's actually including in this all scripture, when he uses that phrase, he's also referring to the books of the Bible, which we now have in our New Testaments, uh, that were already in existence at that time. So this letter, again, I said 65 AD, written at the end of Paul's life, There are 27 books in your New Testament today. 27 books in your New Testament. By this time, 23, now this one being one of them, right? So but 23 of those 27 books had already been written. And not only were they written, but they were in distribution. They were being copied and distributed throughout all the early Christian churches. And they were considered to be Holy Scripture in the same way and on the same level as the Old Testament was considered Holy Scriptures. Now, that's really important because you will hear people say that, you know, oh, you know, the early Christians didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. Or, you know, these books were just letters that people passed around. They weren't considered Scripture in the way that we consider them Scripture until later on, and then people looked back at them and said, oh, those were really important. Let's say that they're Scripture. Or another thing you might hear, you might hear people say, the New Testament didn't even exist until the time of Constantine, which was 300 years after Jesus. And I'm here to tell you guys, that's just simply not true. I mean, I mean, if you want to just disregard history, then you can believe those things. But if you really want to look at the facts, those things are not true. And guys, the fact is this, is, this is why we have to talk about this, because there is so much misinformation out there, and, and we need to dispel a lot of these fake ideas um, that people get. You know, people, uh, unfortunately, today get all their information about how things are, you know, either from, you know, dubious sources on the internet or somebody told them and they just believed it, right? And so let's look at the history. If you would have gone into a Christian church in the first century, 
Now, they were mostly house churches, and there's a reason for that. It's because Christianity was an illegal or illicit religion until the Edict of Milan, which was in 314 AD. Okay, so until that time, Christianity was an illegal or illicit religion. And what that meant is that uh, they wouldn't always get shut down or persecuted. Sometimes they allowed these gatherings, but they could never buy their own buildings. So they didn't have church buildings. They met in houses, not because meeting in houses is necessarily better, but meeting in houses was a necessity. They couldn't buy buildings. And so if you would have gone into a church, it would have been probably met in someone's house. It probably would have been pretty small. And, uh, and they had many of them throughout a city. And if you would have gone to a church, let's say 30 years, like at the time this was written, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, they would have had handwritten copies of almost every book that you have in your New Testament today. And at their gatherings, what would they do? Well, they would read those letters, and then a teacher would explain, they'd help to explain and help to apply those teachings from the, those New Testament letters and books to the people's lives, very much similar to what we do today. So let, let me give you a couple examples from the Bible that show you, kind of just cross-referencing, and show you that the early Christians not only had the New Testament books and that they were being distributed, but that they considered them Scripture, Holy Scripture, in the same way that the Old Testament was considered Holy Scripture, the very Word of God. So I'll just give you a list here. Second Peter chapter 3, Paul refers to the writings of, I'm sorry, Peter refers to the writings of Paul and refers to them as Scripture. So Peter's saying, hey, you know, when Paul writes his letters, those aren't just letters, those are Scripture, and he recognizes them. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul refers to his own message as the Word of God. It wasn't just his opinion. He said, this is the Word of God. It's inspired by God. In, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes from the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it Scripture. That's important. It means that they had the Gospel of Luke, and, and they read it, and everybody considered it Scripture. In, in some of his letters, like in Colossians and Thessalonians, Paul instructs them specifically, make copies of these letters and distribute them to be read in all the churches. Okay, so this is, this is how it works. So when Paul says all Scripture, keep this in mind. He's not just talking about the Old Testament. He's also talking about the New Testament writings, which were already in existence at this time, which was most of the New Testament, about 23 out of 27 books. And what uh, Paul is saying is that these scriptures are breathed out by God. They are inspired by God. They are, in other words, the very words of God. Now, I know what you might be thinking, or maybe I'm just guessing what you're thinking, but here's what somebody might say. They might say, okay, wait, so are you telling me Basically this, I should believe the Bible because the Bible says I should believe the Bible, right? Well, that's kind of circular reasoning, isn't it, right? Like the Bible says I should believe the Bible and therefore I believe. But what if I don't believe the Bible? Well, then there you go, right? Like I don't believe that whole argument. Like why should I believe the Bible is the word of God? Well, because the Bible says it's the word of God. Well, again, circular reasoning. And so uh, what if I don't believe the Bible? Now look, I get that. But why do I bring this up? Obviously, you know, that is circular reasoning. We need something outside to, to shed light on the Bible to see, is it really true when it says that it's the word of God? But here's why I want you to see this first. Because I want you to see that this is how the Bible portrays itself. That's why this verse is so important. This is how the Bible portrays itself. This is what the Bible claims to be, the very word of God. Now think about it. If these verses weren't here, 
then what would people say? They would say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't even claim to be the word of God. But obviously it does. And that's why this verse is important. The Bible does claim to be the very words of God. And therefore the writings we have in the Bible are utterly different than any other writings that exist in the world. Now listen, that's either true or it's not true. But this is what the Bible claims to be. So now we have to take that and deal with it. The Bible claims to be the very word of God. Is it true? Is it not? Well, let's look at some other evidence, but I want you to see this is the question we have to answer. Is the Bible what it claims to be, the very word of God inspired by God? Now, how do we, how do we know whether this claim is true? Now, a lot of people, if, you, if you've asked these kinds of questions before, maybe you asked, well, I don't know, you, you've asked, so how do I know that it's the word of God? How can I be sure? And the answer that you've gotten sometimes uh, when you've asked, how can I be sure, people have told you this. They've said, well, look, you just have to accept it on faith. As if there's no evidence out there. That's, that's, I think that's actually uh, irresponsible for us as Christians because here's the deal. There is a ton of evidence out there and our goal should be to help as many people as possible see the evidence about the Bible because here's what I'm convinced of is that the more you look at the evidence for the Bible about whether it's historically reliable, whether it's true, here's what you'll be convinced of. You'll be convinced of our first point here, which is this, the Bible is indeed historically reliable. So one of the questions that people ask when it comes to the Bible, like we just read this letter from Paul. How do we know that what we're reading is what Paul actually wrote, right? Or let's say we read the Gospel of Matthew. How can I be sure that when I read the Gospel of Matthew, I'm reading what was actually written and it wasn't just tampered with or changed over time? I mean, it's been a long time, 2,000 years. I mean, how can we know that it hasn't gone through changes and transformations and people in power kind of came in and scratched out parts they didn't like and added things that they did like to give themselves more control and more power? How can I know that when I read the Gospel of John or any part of the Bible, that what I'm reading is what was originally and actually written? That's a really good question. And to answer that question, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna walk you through a couple of ancient documents because what I want you to see is this is an issue not just for the Bible, but this is an issue for all ancient documents. Did you know that there is actually no major writing from antiquity, from the ancient world, for which we have an original copy? Of any writing from the ancient world, there's almost no original copies. All right, we don't have like, you know, the book of, uh, I don't know, Hebrews, you know, with the guy's signature at the end and he wrote it with his own hand. No, what we have are called manuscripts, which are handwritten copies. And the reason we don't have original copies of any ancient writings is because of the ways that the, the materials that were used and the ways that documents were stored and, and done in ancient times. And so keep that in mind and let's look at this. Let's look at this chart. I've got a slide here for you. So on this chart, here's what you're gonna see. Have you heard of Plato, right? Plato, very famous philosopher. He wrote a book called The Republic. And so here's when he wrote it. He wrote it somewhere in 427 to 347. They're not exactly sure. But the earliest manuscript that we have of it is from 900 AD. So just do the math there. That's 1,200 years between the original writing and the oldest copy that we have. And, and here's the thing. Nobody questions whether or not Plato actually wrote the Republic, right? Because we understand that this is how ancient documents work. This is how manuscripts work. Now we have how many copies? Seven copies of um, manuscripts of the Republic and the, the 
closest to the original writing is 1,200 years later. Next, we have Aristotle, kind of a disciple of Plato's, and he wrote a little bit after Plato, 384 to 322 BC. Now, the oldest known manuscript, or the earliest manuscript of that is 1100 AD. Again, the math, 1,400 years. But again, nobody questions whether or not Aristotle actually wrote the things that he wrote in these books. Tacitus, now he's important, why? Tacitus was a Roman historian. So he writes and he's claiming to write actual history. Now again, there you see he wrote around 100 AD uh, after Jesus, right? And then he wrote, uh, the earliest manuscripts we have are from 1100 AD. So there's a thousand year gap between the original writing and the oldest manuscript. And we have 20 of those manuscripts And then we get to the New Testament. So here's the deal. Look, um, is the New Testament at least as reliable as Plato and Aristotle and Tacitus? Well, let's take a look. The Old Testament was written between 50 and 100 AD, more like like 40 and 90 AD. But uh, the earliest manuscripts we have really date from the second century AD which is not a thousand-year gap. In some cases, it's not even a hundred-year gap. In some cases, it's a matter of decades probably, right? We have uh, fragments of the Gospel of John which date back to just a few decades after they were originally written. And how many copies do we have of these manuscripts? Not seven, not 49, not 20. We have 5,686 copies. And what this means And this is just objectively true, guys. This is just how it is. It means this. The New Testament is, hands down, the most widely attested ancient document in existence. Like, it's it's not even close. It's ridiculous how much more attested it is than even the closest writings from that same time. Now, maybe you say, okay, I get it. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, we have a lot of manuscripts, but how accurate are these manuscripts? Here's the answer. You ready? Here's a number. 99.4%. 99.4%. They are identical. We say, well, that's nice, but I'm still worried about that 0.6%. What's up with that 0.6%? Well, here's what it is. It's what's called textual variances. Textual variances. And here's what that means. They were writing these by hand, And when a scribe made an error, what they would do is they would usually catch it right away, right? Just like you do if you ever write by hand anymore, right? You make a problem, you scratch it out, and uh, let's say you're writing a check or signing something, you have to put your initials above it. They did the same thing. What they would do is they'd scratch it out, put their initials above it, and then they would go on writing what they should have written. Those are called textual variances. Again, so these are These are not changes to the meaning of the text. They're just mistakes in a copy of the text and they were corrected. And here's the other thing. Uh, Sometimes it's just a comma. Sometimes one manuscript says Jesus and another one says Lord Jesus. Um, But here's the other thing. No two scribes made the same mistake. They didn't make the same mistake. They made their own mistakes in different places. And so if you compare all the documents, you can easily see what the text meant to say and what it should say. So here's, here's what that all means. When you open up your Bible, you can be absolutely sure that what you are reading has not been altered or changed from its original writing. We have the manuscripts to prove it. And what about the Old Testament? I won't spend a lot of time on this, but just think about this. Until 1946, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah, which is one of the biggest books in the Bible from the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, it was what was called the Codex Leningrad, which was dated from 1000 AD. So until 1946, the oldest copy we had of of Isaiah, the earliest manuscript was from 1000 AD, which 
you know, the book was written 500 years before Jesus. So the math there, 1,500 years from the original writing to the earliest copy we had. And people said, wow, that's a lot of time. Like, how can we be sure that Isaiah hasn't been messed with, like it hasn't been added to? Specifically, Isaiah is important because Isaiah uniquely is filled with a lot of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. And when you read them, you're like, wow, that seems like it's talking exactly about Jesus. Specifically, there's one chapter, chapter 53, which seems to describe Jesus' crucifixion in great detail. It describes a suffering servant, the Messiah coming and dying for the sins of the people to make atonement for their sins by his death. And Christians have always pointed to those verses and said, see, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this. And this is one of the proofs that Jesus is who he said he was. Now, one of the theories that was out there was that Christians had tampered with the Old Testament and they had added in these verses that looked like prophecies about Jesus so they could point to them and say, look, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. And then they went back because they were the people in power and they destroyed all the old copies of the Old Testament to cover their tracks. And all that we're left with is these new Old Testaments that have the Christian verses added to them. So is that true or is it not? It was a theory. In 1946, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time took place. We got to go to the place Qumran in Israel near the Dead Sea where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's what they found. They found handwritten copies of the Old Testament dating back to 100 years before Jesus, before Jesus. And amongst these was the scroll of Isaiah. It's a complete scroll of Isaiah. When we were in Israel this last time, it's on display in the Israel Museum. You get to see the entire thing. And what they were able to do is they were able to read this ancient, over 2,000-year-old document, and they were able to compare it with the book of Isaiah in your Bible that you have in your lap right now. And you know what they found? 99% identical. And again, the variations were all in spelling and punctuation. None of them went to meaning. So what does this show us? What does all this evidence about the Bible show us? Historians who read this stuff, people who study these things, here's what they would tell you. What you are reading is what was written. Now, that doesn't get to the question of is it true, but it does mean this, that it's historically reliable. You can be confident that it hasn't been altered, it hasn't been changed over time. Now maybe you say, okay, but wait, weren't there also other books that also talked about Jesus, other gospels, other letters that were distributed at that time that were cut out of the Bible and excluded from our Bibles. And so therefore what we have isn't the whole story. There are parts that have been suppressed and removed by people in power in order to consolidate their power because those verses threaten them. So when I was a kid, I remember... I loved going to the grocery store and my favorite part about going to the grocery store was in the checkout line, they had those tabloid newspapers. I, I don't know if they still do because now I do all the self-checkout, right? But they had those tabloid newspapers and I love those tabloid newspapers because they're full of fake news and there's always really, really interesting, right? Like Bat Boy, you know, comes and attacks some people in a gas station or like aliens landed and took over Washington, D.C. or Sasquatch, you know, uh, had coffee at Starbucks and, and a, a giant eagle carried off you know, some children or something like that. And uh, it was just really funny. I liked reading it, right? It was like the National Enquirer and all these magazines. Now, we still have fake news today, but unfortunately, it's not as fun as it was back then, right? Now our fake news is just disturbing. But as you can imagine, there was a lot of fake news uh, back then 
as well, right? Like fake news isn't just a thing that just started happening. And so what happened was that there was a lot of fake news going around about Jesus. And so the early church said, well, we need to help people discern like what is really legit and what's not. And so what they did is they said, we need to have what's called a canon of scripture in order to dispel the fake news and solidify what really happened and what is really inspired by God. And in the end, they used three criteria. Here's basically three criteria they used to canonize 27 books of the New Testament and no others. And here's what they said. They said, uh, Three major criteria for canonization. Number one, apostolic authority. Was it written by an apostle or an eyewitness? Okay, and the second one was congruency. Is it consistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches and what the early Christians believed? And finally, acceptance. Was it widely used and distributed within the early church? So maybe some of you have heard of a book called The Gospel of Thomas. Right? Gospel of Thomas is a book that was discovered actually only in 1945. It was discovered in Egypt. And sometimes what people say is they say, look, we found the Gospel of Thomas. Look, that proves there were other books out there about Jesus, but the early church, you know, suppressed them and got rid of them and because they told a different story about Jesus and the church felt that they were a threat to its power. Well, I just want to tell you this. You can read the Gospel of Thomas. It's available online. It is open source. Uh, well, not open source. What do you call it? It's, a, it's public domain. That's what I meant to say. Uh, and you can go and read it. I had to read it for school. And I'll tell you what. If you read it, you're going to very quickly understand why it was not included in the Bible. There, there are several reasons. But what you're going to see is it's basically like the National Enquirer of 2,000 years ago. It tells these outrageous stories about Jesus as a child. And, and so, you know, the, the Gospels we have don't talk about Jesus as a child except for one story. Um, and so somebody was like, well... Let's make a book and talk about what Jesus did when he was a kid. And he did all kinds of crazy stuff. My favorite part is uh, he got in a fight with this other kid, right? So Jesus, it tells a story. He built a dam out of sticks. And he had gotten this pool of water. He built this little dam out of sticks in the street. And this other kid came over and like kicked over his dam and ruined what he was playing with. So what did Jesus do? Of course, he killed him, right? So that's, Jesus uh, was a six-year-old murderer. And he just killed this kid for messing with this playground stuff. And it says that he, he cursed him on the spot. The kid died and his body withered up like a tree. Uh, again, it's just kind of like, you know, kind of like National Enquirer, right? Like aliens landed, the bat boy came, the eagle carried off some children. Uh, again, the gospels were being written at a time when people who were there were still around to ask hey, did this really happen? And they were like, no, that did not happen. Like, that's not true. And so they said, okay, you don't get to be in the Bible. Like, that's how it worked. The bottom line is this. The Bible is historically reliable. The books of the New Testament give the most accurate account of Jesus' life and the teachings that Jesus gave to the apostles. Now that doesn't, again, that still doesn't mean that it's true, but it does mean that this is accurate and it's historically reliable. When you read it, then you, you need to understand that when you read it, that what you're reading is what was written and it is indeed accurate. Okay, the next thing you should know about the Bible is this. The Bible is subversive to the powers that be. Now, right, this is what people say. Isn't the Bible oppressive? Like that quote we read earlier. Wasn't the Bible just created by the people who were in power in order to suppress and control other people? Again, look at the historical evidence and you'll find out that was not the case. Uh, because again, if the Bible is historically reliable and accurate, which we've seen that it is, then we know who wrote it. And we also know what happened to them as a result of writing it. 
James B. Woodbridge is a historian and he puts it this way. When you take into consideration the early Christians' fearless devotion to their faith, their willingness to testify through their own martyrdom to the truth of Christ. Let's just take a a break there for a second. In other words, for the early Christians, it wasn't like, I'm gonna get something out of this. No, for them it was, I'm going to give my life for this, right? So it wasn't like, um, I'm gonna get something for following Jesus. I'm gonna become a leader in the church and I'm gonna be rich and famous and powerful. No, you know what they got? They, they lost their jobs, they lost their families, uh, and many of them lost their lives. In fact, all of them almost uh, lost their lives. All of the apostles, except for one, were all killed for their faith. The only one who wasn't killed was the apostle John, who died of old age, but it wasn't for uh, lack of trying, right? Like they tortured him. It says that they put him in boiling oil at one point. At the end of his life, they sent him into exile to a prison colony in the island of Patmos, and that's where he finally died. Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, he was stabbed to death with spears. James was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul spent years in jail until he was finally executed. In other words, what did these people get for writing these things that they wrote and propagating these beliefs? What did they get for for giving their lives for this mission? Most of these people becoming a Christian did not make their life easier. It made their life harder. And so why would anybody do that? Why would you sign up for that, right? Why would you say, oh, I want my life to be super hard and then I want to get tortured to death? No, who would do that? Only a person who had met Jesus and their life had been changed as a result. And they were changed so radically by his love that they couldn't help but respond to it, right? They were compelled to live their lives differently in a way that honored God, in a way that helped other people learn about him and and receive his grace. And let me ask you this, who did these people oppress? Who were they oppressing? Just look at the history. Nobody. In fact, they elevated those and they welcomed the marginalized of society and every marginalized group, right? They said things like, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are one in Christ. So let's continue this quote from this historian. He said, their willingness to testify through their own martyrdom to the truth of Christ, their humble and compassionate lifestyle, their care for each other and the helpless and the hurting, their commitment to prayer and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And you can understand why the faith spread so quickly. See, this was a mystery to historians, right? How did this ragtag group of people who watched a guy die and then believed that he resurrected from the dead, how did they take over the Roman world? Why did Christianity spread like it did? People weren't taking other people's lives. They were giving their lives and they weren't getting anything in return for it. How did it spread? Here's why. Because Jesus revolutionized their lives. It wasn't dangerous. It wasn't oppressive. Rather, they were standing up against oppression, It's completely subversive. See, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is that a new king has come and he has brought a new kingdom and he and his kingdom deserve your full allegiance. And one day he's gonna come and he is gonna judge all of the oppressors in the world and he will overthrow every kingdom and establish his kingdom forever. And as Christians, we are called to be a prophetic voice in the world. You know that, right? We don't tow any party line, guys. We speak up in the face of everything and say, this is what God says is right, no matter what anybody thinks or says about it. And yet, right, Yeah, people have used Christianity to further their own agendas. They have used it to oppress people. But an honest reading of the Bible will not allow you to do that. If you look at the lives of the people who wrote it, this is certainly 
not what they did, right? They didn't oppress others. If you look through history, for example, the Middle Ages, you'll notice that those in power, when they wanted to consolidate power, they would actually take the Bible away from people. And then when the people got the Bible back, right, in the, at the end of the Middle Ages, that led to a great revolution, which we call the Reformation, right? So throughout history, uh, when people have started reading and studying the Bible, it has led to movements which have put an end to some of the greatest evils that have been done in history, right? They've, they've stood up and subverted the powers that be. In other words, the Bible wasn't created by oppressors. It wasn't used to oppress people. Rather, it puts all oppressors on notice, it creates an army of transformed people who go out into the world and sacrifice their lives for others. And finally, the third thing I want you to see is this. The Bible is not primarily about being good. Now, a lot of people I've talked to uh, have said this. Okay, maybe the Bible is historically reliable and maybe it does tell an accurate story about Jesus and maybe it's not oppressive, but I still don't think I need it. Like, I don't need the Bible in order to be a good person. I can just choose to be a good person just because I want to. I don't need some invisible God to tell me in his magical book what I have to do in order to be good. I can just choose to be good. And they might even say this. In fact, that's even more virtuous because I'm not doing it because some God is hanging over me and telling me to do it. I'm doing it just because I want to do it, right? And they might say religious people do it because they have to. I do it because I want to. They might also say this. The Bible is thousands of years old. Maybe it worked for people that back then, but haven't we progressed in the last 2,000 years? Like, we don't need the Bible. We're, we're smart people. We can just get together. We can decide for ourselves as a, as a society how things ought to be. Right? We don't need to live by moral standards from the past. We can just think about things and decide collectively what is right and wrong for us. Again, haven't we progressed beyond where they were at 2,000 years ago? Now, first of all, I, I don't think that we have progressed. I mean, if you look around at society, I think that whole idea is, is a myth. Clearly, human nature hasn't changed. We're still doing all the same things. But here's, here's what somebody else might say. They might say, well, okay, look, the Bible sounds cool and all, but there are other religions that also have books, and those books tell you how to be good. Um, you know, there are other holy books. Why should I only accept the Bible? Why not accept some of those books as well? And the answer to those questions is this. The Bible is not primarily about being good. It's not. See, this is what sets the Bible apart from other books. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems. Again, I'm gonna bring you back to 2 Timothy chapter three and that verse, verse 15, that's so important. He says this, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings from your youth, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. One of the greatest proofs that the Bible is indeed a unique book, which is inspired by God, is its internal consistency. Just some quick facts about the Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. These books were written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different authors who wrote in three different languages on three different continents. Most of them never met each other. And yet, when you bring all these books together, they tell one unified story. It's as if each of these writers was inspired by God to write their piece. And like a puzzle, you put all those pieces together and they form a unified whole without contradiction and with one consistent focus. Again, it's not like they sat down and planned this. Many of these people never met each other. They lived over the course of 1,600 years. 
And so what is the story that the Bible altogether tells? It's the story of how God has acted in history to save us. See, the message of the gospel, the story that God's been writing ever since history began and sin and death came into the world, it's the story of how God loves you. He loves you so much that he is working in order to save you. See, the Old Testament pointed forward to what God would do to save you. When Jesus came, he performed that act of salvation. He gave his life as a ransom for yours. He took your sin. He took the judgment that you deserve upon himself so you could receive God's mercy and grace. And the rest of the New Testament is about how everything is different now because of what Jesus did. Can you be good without God? Sure, right? Can you be good without the Bible? Of course, there are a lot of nice people out there who don't follow the Bible, but the Bible isn't about how to be nice. It's not about how to be good, primarily. You know what the Bible's about? It's about how to be rescued. That's what he's telling us. He tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus. The word salvation, it implies that there is something that you need to be saved from that you cannot do for yourself. No matter how good you are, you can't be good enough to save yourself. And the message of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ in order to give his life for you so that he took the death that you should have died, he, took, he lived the life that you should have lived so that you can have hope in this life and joy for eternity to come. And when you really get that, when you really understand it, when you really receive that by faith, not only does it change you, Right? It, makes you, it gives you a new identity, but it also gives you a new motivation for how to live. You want to go out into the world like those early Christians did and lay down your life just as Jesus laid down his life for you, to serve others just as he served you. And so here's my encouragement for you today. We've talked about a lot of stuff. I realize it's a lot of information, but you know what? It's not going to benefit you at all if you don't pick up your Bible and actually read it. You know that? But here's what I want you to know. If you can trust the Bible, if you can know that it's accurate, if it claims to be the word of God, then doesn't that make you want to actually hear it and read it? I want to encourage you and challenge you to do that. Read at least a chapter a day for the next month and let's see how it changes your life. See how God uses it in your life. But here's the other thing. Don't just read it. You have to respond to it because it demands a response receive the point of the scriptures, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's saving work through Jesus in order to save you and live your life in response to that, response to the love and the grace of God towards you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you have given us your word. And Lord, I believe that you've protected your word. You've guarded it. And so, Lord, now we, we, uh, we thank you for that. We thank you that you've revealed who you are. But beyond that, Lord, you have acted in history in order to save us. You've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that we would not only hear that, that we would not only understand it, but that we would receive it. That we would say, yes, Lord, uh, God, don't give me what I deserve. Give me what Jesus earned and deserved on my behalf. Lord, give me grace and mercy because of what Jesus did. And we receive it by faith. So Lord, thank you for your word. May we read it, may we believe it, and may we put it into practice in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 